Amber Guzman. Mm. Love you. Beautiful. Beautiful. Mm. Thank you. Hello, hello. A few more faces have popped in since I was here last. <laughs> Good to see you. Good to see all of you. Ah, we are moving along. We're going to try something new. We're going to see uh, if I can uh, do this and, and, and help John out a little bit. Uh, he's been doing audio and visual and everything back there, and it's a lot to do. So uh, welcome, welcome. We are following along this year. We're in October now. 100 years of science of mind. And we're flipping things up a little bit. We're flipping home office. We're doing November and October, and we're going to do October and November, so not to confuse you. But uh, what we are doing now is freedom from fear and error thinking. Freedom from fear and error thinking, which for the movement will be in November. So I won't have the videos for you to put on to Facebook uh, until next month. But uh, this is what we're doing. And we'll be doing freedom from fear and error thinking. So that's what we're going to take a look at this month. And uh, today's talk title is The Fall from Grace. The Fall from Grace. And Dr. Petra Wells from CSL Dallas uh, wrote this uh, week's outline. And our ministers, we just had our minister gathering in Dallas this last week. And there's been lots of posted things. And they've been out doing all kinds of things. And that's Dr. Petra Wells's church and, and Karen Fry's church. And, 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 they, uh, and the, Dr. Petras, who wrote this one for today. So we're talking about the fall from grace, the fall from grace or the fruit of good and evil. And, and many of you probably know where that comes from. It comes from the story of the Garden of Eden. If you were raised in a uh, uh, home that was uh, not a Christian home, you may not know the story, but I'm going to try to sum it up for you and tell you it. I think most of us probably know the story of the Garden of Eden, the story of Adam and Eve. You know, in the book of Genesis, it's the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, God created heaven and earth. And then one day he created man. And he created Adam. And from the rib of Adam, he created Eve. And he put them in this amazing garden where he had put all kinds of, um, every type of fruit and every type of vegetable and every type of animal and streams and water and just a beautiful, beautiful place called Eden. And in it, there was a tree. And it was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told them, God told Adam and Eve, that they could eat anything, they could do anything in this garden except eat the fruit of that one tree, right? And then so one day, a serpent tempted Eve and came to Eve and said, you know, you could eat this fruit. You're not going to die. I mean, really, what's going to happen to you? Have a bite, right? And so she did. And she also gave some to Adam for him to eat. And then she their eyes were opened, and they realized in that moment that they were naked, and they hid. God came to the garden, and he was looking for Adam, and he was calling Adam, and Adam was hiding, and God said, Adam, why are you hiding? And he said, because I'm naked, Lord. And God said, did you, drink, did you eat from that tree that I told you not to? And Adam said, yes, I did, and God banishes him from the Garden of Eden. Well, that's how the story goes in Genesis, right? Now, doesn't sound very science of mind, does it? Right? Doesn't sound like it's compatible with our teaching. It really doesn't sound like a loving God. Um, why would God create this beautiful oasis, put us in it, tell us not to eat one fruit, and when we eat it, kick us out? Like, how does that work, right? 
Ernest, Hun Ernest Holmes was much more blunt when he said like this. In The Hidden Power of the Bible, Ernest says, this story taken literally would be so ridiculous as to be positively absurd. Hence, it is necessary to look at a deeper meaning. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take a look at a deeper meaning of that story and what does it mean to us today. And we're going to start with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the tree of knowledge of good and evil represents duality. Right? It represents two sides. It represents the idea that there is good and there's bad, or the seemingly good and the seemingly bad. Up until the time that we become aware of that, there's only one. There's only one. There's only one, and it's God, and it's good. And then when we reach this place of sort of our humanness, or our material world, then we start to see the two sides. Once we have eaten of the fruit, we see a world that has both good and bad, we no longer see with a single eye. Oh, why would there be such a tree in this story? Man has self-choice, and he would not be a person. And having choice implies there must be more than one thing from which to choose. Ernest Holmes says, at once we see the meaning of this. We could eat from the tree which bears fruit of love. And the more we eat from that, the better off we are. But if we begin to mix love with hate, we come into confusion. The fruit does not digest because hate is contrary to the nature of love. You know, so then that begs the question of why did God make man a free agent? Why did God create us to be free? And Ernest says in The Creative Mind and Success, if God had created us in such a way as to compel us to do or be anything that was not of our choosing, we should not have been individuals at all. We should be automatons, he says, automatons. And so the expulsion from the garden is a necessary and logical outcome of the tasting of duality. If we believe in both good and evil, we must experience both. Okay, so what about Adam and Eve then? How did Adam and Eve fit into this picture? I know some of us feminist women like are objecting to the fact that um, Eve was made out of the rib of man, right? What's that all about anyway? Right? Well, according to our teaching, Adam and Eve are, are the potential in all of us. All of us have both Adam and Eve within us. Adam was not really a man and, and, and a woman. I'm sorry. Adam and Eve were not really a man and a woman, but represented the two sides of our nature. We can liken Adam to the intellect, to our consciousness, our self-choice, and we can liken Eve to our subconscious. We are all Adam and Eve. We have a conscious Adam mind, and we have a subconscious Eve mind. So when we think about our science of mind teaching, Adam is that conscious mind, and Eve is our subconscious mind. And who influences our conscious mind? But our subconscious mind. Therefore, Eve influenced Adam to take the apple. The serpent. The serpent's another character in that story, and this is a little more esoteric, the serpent. The serpent which casts Adam and Eve out of the garden means the outer realm of spiritual existence. So he's circling, we're kind of in that place of dualism, we're in that place of materialism, we're in that place that's separate from the divine. The life principle viewed from an isolated and materialistic basis. The worship of material existence, apart, cast Adam and Eve from the garden. The attempt to live in the world of conditions or the world of effects. 
that attempt to live in this whole human plane and forget about spirit. Ernest Holmes says the serpent represents the life principle. Viewed from a material basis alone, it casts us from a perfect state, lifted up, that is, viewed from a true meaning of the unity of a God, it heals. It heals as if Moses holds up the serpent in the Old Testament and the people that view it are healed. Here is the choice again, only stated in different words. The difference is not the thing itself, but the way we look at it, which is so true of everything. Well, this is the meaning of the serpent and the Savior and the great symbol which runs throughout the Bible, depicting the right and wrong way to use the power which is within us, the power that is greater than we are. That's from our Science of Mind textbook. And I want to read you this paragraph that Dr. Petra wrote, because I think it sums up this kind of uh, explanation in, in a very nice way. Science of Mind teaches that the fundamental power we have is the power to choose. Our ability to choose sets the law in motion and thus we co-create. Without this power to choose and things to choose between, we are automons, as Holmes states. Knowing this is the whole point of the knowledge of good and evil, we see what it really isn't about a moral or ethical good or evil, but rather about the ability to choose to live one with God, or to turn our backs on the spiritual reality and live by our human capacities alone. So it's a little bit different, a little bit different than maybe the story that we were raised with, a little bit different, you know. There's a Chinese parable, and some of you I'm sure have heard it, it's a popular one, but it's the Chinese parable of the farmer. The farmer who has a wonderful, wonderful, um, beautiful horse that is admired by everyone, admired by everybody, and one day the horse runs away. And the fellow villagers come to him and he says, oh my gosh, that's it's so terrible that your horse ran away. And he says, maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe yes, maybe no. And a few weeks later, the horse returns with an entire herd of wild horses. And the neighbors once again gather around and they say, oh my God, how wonderful. Your horse returned with this herd. How wonderful for you. And the farmer says, maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe yes, maybe no. And so his son, the farmer has a son, and his son sits about to tame the wild horses. And he gets on one of the horses, and he's thrown from the horse, and he breaks his leg. And once again, the villagers come about, and they say, Oh my goodness, how terrible, your son broke his leg. And the farmer says, What? Maybe yes, maybe no. It's too soon to tell, right? And a few days later, war breaks out, and the army comes to recruit the oldest son in every family. And his son doesn't get called because he has a broken leg. And the neighbors come and they say, how wonderful. Your son was spared because he had a broken leg. And the farmer says, maybe yes, maybe no. It's too soon to tell. Right? So there's nothing good or bad, yet we claim it so. We name it. Right? The things we, uh, you know, we, we changed the way something is by the way that we're looking at it, by the way that we're viewing it, by the way that we're experiencing it. Something of itself is not bad. Okay, so what about this thing called evil? This is always a big one in science of mind. Um, today we're having basic beliefs after um, 
church today at about 12 o'clock. We'll meet in the library if anybody wants to just have it. It's a free introductory class. It lasts about 30, 40 minutes in the basics of science of mind. We just come, we go over it, and one of the questions that we answer is, what does science of mind believe about evil? So what about this thing of evil? Evil is never a thing in itself or of itself. It is merely a limited use or perhaps a misuse of the creative power, which is complete and perfect within itself. Now, this is important, and this is Ernest Holmes, and this is a part that I think sometimes we overlook. We do not deny that people experience what we call evil. The experience of evil is more than imagination. It's an actual experience. If we can feel that it's something the human has created through ignorance rather than something that is ordained and predetermined, we shall be in a better position to combat it. So by the misuse of our will, by the misuse of our thinking, we in fact set ourselves up to have what we would call evil. Our consciousness, race consciousness, the consciousness of our ancestors, all of that puts together to create these things. Ernest goes on to say the origin of evil is in the human mind. And the belief in the devil, in hell, purgatory, and limbo has its origins in the human mind and nowhere else. We must have the assurance that evil will disappear from our experience in such a degree as we no longer feed it with our imagination or through our acts create situations that encourage it. So when it feels less than love, when it feels like things are happening in your life that feel evil, that feel bad, know that that is the truth of what you're experiencing, but it is not the truth of the big T. We can change that experience. Sometimes it feels as if we can't. Sometimes it feels like there's no way. Something that's happened that's so terrible, that's so wrong, that we're in so much pain, that how could we turn this around? You know, then I invite you to get prayer support. I invite you to see your practitioner. I invite you to call the prayer line. And I invite you to remember who you are. Right? You know, if we think of Jesus, Jesus was crucified on the cross. Right? That was not a good thing. You know, but it was for good, but it was for good. So nothing is good or bad, yet we name it so. What fruit will we eat? You know, what fruit will we eat? It's another story of a great warrior, and this warrior was very elderly, but he had never lost a, a fight. He had never lost a match. He was known throughout the land and he was a great teacher and many students came and studied with him. Well, there was a young warrior that arrived from another village and he was quite full of himself and he had never lost a, a battle so far. He was really wanting to take on this master because he wanted to be the one that defeated him. And he was known for patiently waiting and watching and allowing the other person to make their first move that would refill their weakness and he would he would prey on that weakness. And so, much to the uh, unhappiness of the students of the master, he agreed to fight this young man. His students didn't think they sh that he should. The students thought that this young man was going to be able to, to beat their, their teacher. And so they made arrangements for the day of the fight, and they came, and the master stood, and he squared his shoulders, and he stood there, and the young warrior approached him, and he immediately started to uh, insult him. He threw dirt at him, and he spit on him, he called him every kind of name he could think of, he insulted him. For hours this went on, and the master never moved. He just stood, and eventually, 
the other uh, warrior realized he was defeated. He was exhausted, and he went away in shame. And the students came to the master, and they said, Master, how did you do it? How were you able to, to, to win? How were you able to stand? How were you able to not be affected by all that he was doing to you? And the master said, if someone gives you a gift and you do not receive it, whose gift is it? Right? We don't have to pick it up. We don't have to accept it. So lastly, how do we return to the garden? If we live in this world of cause and effect, if we live in this world of seemingly good, seemingly bad, how do we return to the garden? How do we get back there? The power of choice with which man has been endowed is either his greatest blessing or his greatest curse. Properly understood, it can lift him to the heights. Misunderstood, it can drag him to the depths. He is free to choose anything in which he wishes, but he must accept the responsibility of his choices because inexorable law will create his experience according to his choices. That's again Ernest Holmes. In Deuteronomy, behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. God neither blesses nor curses. God is always God. God is always good. Always goodness. We set ourselves up for the blessing or the curse. Because the law is always neutral. But God is always law, and the law must forever remain neutral and impersonal. If we contact it in mercy, it will show us mercy. If we contact it in judgment, it will judge. The law responds and corresponds to our attitudes and actions. Every law of nature is either a blessing or a curse according to the way in which it is contacted. So whatever we put into the law, we get out. Whatever we put into the soil, we get out. Our thoughts, our attitudes, our words, our actions. We, are, can't, we have no control about what other people are doing, but we do have control of whether we choose to pick it up, whether we choose to receive it, whether we choose to call it our own. It's amazing that the more and more that you practice kind of being that Teflon and not allowing those things of the world to come onto you, the less and less you attract that. The less and less you'll find those ornery people. The less and less you'll be a match for the discontents and the eors of the world. You know, the more and more you'll find people that are full of joy and full of life and full of happiness. Right? Ernest Holmes reminds us that it is our sense of separation that needs to be healed. And that's truly what the story of Garden, uh, the story of the Garden of Eden is about. That sense of separation from God. That sense of separation from source. That sense of separation. We aren't actually separated, but without this sense, we could not actually discover the power of our choices, nor the consequences of our choices. Right? So by having to walk alone, we learn, we grow, we change, we experience, we have choice. You know, what would it be if we had no choice and we were just put her on this planet and everything was just predetermined and predestined and then you died? Right? We have choice. 
We have choice. We are released from the fear of evil or from our own sense of being fallen when we realize that this is simply our individual and humanity's path to self-awareness and self-discovery. I'll leave you with this thought. We are not fallen, but we are free. God bless you. So glad that you're here today. Glad you're here. Welcome. Good.